You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Jenna Bernstein, an orthopedic surgeon with Connecticut Orthopedics, where all we have gotten out of living in the insurance capital of America is more prior offs. I'm Jesse Wolfstadt, an academic orthopedic surgeon at the University of Toronto, where we're finally defrosting after a cold winter like a frozen allograft femoral head thawing in betadine. We are honored to be joined by Dr. Somia Viswanathan and Christopher Kim to discuss the role of orthobiologics and injectables in the treatment of knee osteoarthritis. Dr. Viswanathan is a senior translational scientist at the Schroeder Arthritis Institute and the Kremble Research Institute at the University Health Network and associate professor at the University of Toronto. She's extensive experience with developing cellular therapies, including stem cells in the treatment of knee arthritis. Dr. Christopher Kim is a surgeon scientist at the Schroeder Arthritis Institute and the Kremble Research Institute at the University Health Network has a busy clinical practice focusing on lower extremity reconstruction at the Sprott Department of Surgery at UHN and is an assistant professor at University of Toronto. After completing his residency with me as his co-resident, he completed his PhD and his research now focuses on combining cell and gene therapies to engineer designer cells that can reduce inflammation and cartilage degradation in osteoarthritis. Wow. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. So we'll get right into it. Regenerative medicine often gets an eye roll from orthopedic surgeons, especially arthroplasty surgeons, as most of the patients we see coming in have been promised cures from stem cells and end up paying thousands of dollars with no results. Right now in 2023, what is the role of regenerative medicine for arthritis patients that you see? Getting into it full force. Yeah, Jenna comes with the hard questions right off the right. get-go. Yeah, nothing to ease into it. I think the future is optimistic, actually. And I say this because there's new kind of products that have just been approved, not here, but in India. So got authorization for knee osteoarthritis using allogeneic mesenchymal stromal cells. So this is taking another person's healthy donor mesenchymal stromal cells and then injecting it into the knee and they saw really good outcomes. Anyway, it's approved. And obviously they're trying to get into Canada and in the US. I know there are trials that are happening in Europe that have finished. So they're just collecting kind of the last data. So we'll see how that signal looks for mesenchymal stromal cells as well. I just wanted to say that there's a few companies that are that have products in this space and they've treated like 23,000 patients over a decade. Now, this is not an injectable product. This is more of a surgical implantation product, but they see really good responses from patients, both pain, but also cartilage repair by MRI scores. In South Korea, I guess they can go back and do second look biopsy. So when they do that, they've actually been able to see really nice cartilage highly in like cartilage there and out to like seven years in some of these patients after these surgical implantations. So I think there's hope uh, and reason to be optimistic that these therapies are working. I think the problem has been and will continue to to be is not everyone's going to respond to the treatments. So understanding kind of responder and non-responders and being able to stratify patients will be really important to target the patients and match them with these therapies. So I don't think it's for everyone, but understanding who that patient population is will will definitely take more research to get there, but that'll be the bigger home run. But I do think it's optimistic. Chris, what do you think? 
I'm very hopeful in regards to where we are now. And I think maybe a couple of years ago, prior to COVID, everything was in kind of regenerative medicine. And people thought that these therapies, whether it's injections or biologics or any of these kind of autologous cell therapies or even the therapies of the future, were supposed to regenerate, repair, heal, and cure arthritis. And I think the pendulum swung too much to the other way. And now we're kind of going back and really saying and trying to understand all these therapies. And so I think it's important for, you know, the clinician, the scientist, as well as the patient to ensure that they're informed and they are aware that these technologies do not regenerate, do not repair, do not heal, do not cure, but really at this time are able to kind of relieve symptoms and improve function. And so if we're able to allow our patients to understand that, then as scientists and as clinicians, we can kind of work together, eventually have a cure or regenerate, repair and heal. Specifically, what we're worried about is definitely osteoarthritis. So I think the future definitely looks bright. Chris, I remember shortly after we graduated and you'd started your PhD, I asked you pretty point blank, are we ever going to get to the point where you could do some sort of injection, be it stem cells or some other orthobiologic and have it actually regrow cartilage and cure arthritis? And you were pretty pessimistic. I mean, that's pretty well could probably quote you saying something like not in our lifetime, Jay, uh, or something along those lines. You know, I'm getting the sense, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm getting the sense that, that that's still sort of the case and we're shifting more towards disease management than disease cure. Do you think there ever may be a chance in our lifetime, we're five, seven years out from when we did finish residency, is there a chance in our future, in our lifetime, that there's going to be some sort of injectable that we can use to be a cure and not just, you know, a symptom manager? Yeah, that's a great question, Jesse. I think as you start to dive into osteoarthritis research, I think you realize that there are lots of areas where we still have lots of questions. So there are, you know, major discoveries and you know major advances but then yet we still have a lot to understand so i think in different aspects of osteoarthritis research especially from the lab side there are a lot of advances and there's still a lot to kind of pull together i hope that the groups and the research that's going around the world can come together and and, and find a cure and find a hope but i think at this point we're not there yet i think there's a lot of questions a lot of uh, pathways we still need to understand and really being able to bring different systems together to try and find an actual cure. What do you guys think about the role of regenerative medicine or some sort of biologics in arthritis prevention? Because that's what always kind of stuck with me. Osteoarthritis is more than just cartilage. There's a lot of other things that change in the joint with arthritis, but it seems to me like we should have a something that we can protect the joint with. Is there any research in that or any future in that you think? I think there was another company that was looking at post-traumatic injury and they were getting really good results in terms of kind of reducing inflammation and helping kind of with the healing response. They discontinued that, but I know that they're interested in kind of going back and reopening that program, but it'd be really nice to kind of follow that longitudinally, right? Like over a period of time to see how those patients did and if they had a lower chance of getting, for example, arthritis, which is always kind of the worry when you get these kind of traumatic injuries. So I think, um, especially in some of these types of cell therapies, like because they tend to reduce inflammation, there is a role in at least certain types of arthritis where I think inflammation plays a big part. So it could be kind of post-traumatic. It could also be metabolic, like if that's the origin of the, of the arthritis. So I think, again, I don't know that it's going to work for everyone, but I think there is a 
there's kind of a role for this kind of early on, but in almost all of the clinical trials that I've looked at, and we just did a really nice review paper looking at different randomized clinical trials, and we reviewed 15 of them, like almost all of them focused on kind of later stages, Kelgren's Lauren grade three and four, right? Because that's an easier population to recruit from a regulator's perspective. It's easier to justify and rationalize kind of from the risk to benefit ratio there. So it seems like a lot of focus has been going on there rather than maybe kind of very early away or other kind of post-traumatic injuries. Like that could be a good population to target. But yeah, I do think there's a role for that. And sorry, just to come back to one of the things, I saw a really interesting research talk talking about sort of cell therapies and gene therapies in osteoarthritis and how kind of like the paradigm has shifted from replace, like we were trying to replace a cartilage with healthy cartilage. And then it was like, okay, we can't really do that. We're going to try to repair. And then we're like, okay, we can't really do that as well. We'll try to regenerate. And now the buzzword is reprogram, right? And the idea is that you change the disease environment and the host microenvironment. And I don't think that's something to poop off because I think that's part of the disease progression cascade, right? So if you can make those changes, I think that's part like a stepwise progression towards getting to that big goal of cure, right? That's a big end goal. But I think along that way, we do need to modify and reprogram and change the disease environment. And and that could maybe not fully reverse, but at least kind of reduce the rate at which it progresses. And and that's, that's still a win. Yeah, that's really interesting. Would you both be able to elaborate a little bit more on the research you're currently doing? I know, you know, an interest of both yours, I think is in stem cells. Do you have active studies in human patients looking at, for example, NEOA models and the use of stem cells? Where are we at right now with stem cells? I think one, we have a Health Canada approved study. This is more, I would say, focused on <clears throat> taking bone marrow aspirate and lipoaspirate and looking at how, so bone marrow aspirate is taking bone marrow from the patients and then spinning it down to concentrate like all of the different cells and the growth factors, like the good stuff that these cells secrete. Same with lipoaspirate, that's taking fat and concentrating it down and, and taking all of the factors that they secrete. And there's kind of evidence that they secrete a lot of cocktail of factors that can help with the healing, with the pain, with the inflammation. So we have Health Canada approvals. We're in the process of doing some validation studies to, to get that trial up and running. Another study, and so this is part of this new shorter arthritis advanced therapeutic center that Chris and I are co-directors of. So this is a new center at UHN that's focused really on orthobiologics. So doing clinical research, but also doing kind of basic and translational research. And in my own lab, we've done kind of the MSC mesenchymal stromal cell trial, and we got good results there. And right now we're looking at responders, non-responders to understand what the differences are and how we can engineer kind of next generation cells. And we're looking at those in animal models right now, Jesse. So that's sort of what's happening in my lab on the MSC side. And Chris is also getting up and running and he's going to be looking at genetically modifying that. So maybe Chris, you can talk about that. Mm -hmm. Another part of this kind of therapy center that, that we've started with UHN and the Short Arthritis Institute is a registry where basically every patient that comes in and an injection is part of their care, we really want to be able to follow them and so and see, you know, how they do in regards to their patient reported outcome measures, 
A second thing that we really want to do is to see how patients do after they receive an injection. So once they receive an injection, they may or may not be able to you know, respond. They may not get a response. And so we want to know if they're, you know, why is that response there or not? So we're actually going to be being able to take some biological samples from these patients and kind of analyze that as well. And then uh, thirdly, we want to be able to kind of enroll patients for pain profiling as well as non-responders and really figure out, you know, who is the best person to give an injection to, what type of injection is that, and then at what stage of arthritis is one of these injections the best for, and to continue to follow them uh, longitudinally as well as their biological and inflammatory profile. So in my lab, which we are kind of, you know, starting off, I'll specifically be looking at stem cells, kind of the responses to the anti-inflammatory or the inflammatory environment, and then being able to hopefully genetically edit some of these genes or proteins and to express those by those stem cells. So that kind of segues into another question about giving injections, specifically talking about PRP. So the Orthopedic Academy now has recommendations in favor of PRP for mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis, which is a pretty big change from what we used to, to think. Do you think this is something that we should be offering now to our patients, at least in the US, this is not covered by insurance and is quite expensive? Who should we be offering it to? Is there any specific way this should be prepared? We talk about leukocyte rich or poor a lot of times when we decide about PRP. Yeah, that's a great question, Jenna. And I think the finance part is a big issue. And I think for me and for a lot of other people who do injections, I think, you know, that patient physician relationship is very important. So obviously, you know, you take your appropriate history, you take your appropriate physical, you know, you get your imaging, and then you kind of figure out, you know, is a patient, you know, mild, moderate to severe osteoarthritis. And a lot of the times I think spending time with that patient, educating the patient about the injections, you can talk about steroids, hyaluronic acid, platelet-rich plasma, and something else we can talk about later, which is autologous protein solution. You know, those are kind of the four main injections that, you know, we have here in Canada. And so spending time with that patient, letting them know what each of these injections are, and obviously letting them know about the price as well, too, because you're right, it's not covered and it is out of pocket by the patient. In regards to platelet-rich plasma, I think, you know, that's kind of the entry way into some type of orthobiologic. And the way that I talk to the patient, and some patients come and they already know that they want this. But again, you need to educate them and let them know that there's no guarantee that it's going to work. You may not respond. You may need multiple injections. A lot of the times, platelet-rich plasma, you do need two to three injections, depending upon whether they had a response or not. Or the patients that I select, obviously, one is if a patient wants uh, the PRP or has come for that, and they're very interested in it, then I'll ensure that you know they understand the risks and the benefits of that injection. If a patient has you know mild to moderate osteoarthritis, um, usually uh, you know PRP is something that I would recommend. Someone who may have chronic to low grade osteoarthritis. Someone who's a younger patient with early osteoarthritis. Also with those patients on MRI that may have kind of that small focal chondral defect is a patient that I may inject. And then sometimes you've tried everything, right? You've tried the corticosteroid, you've tried the hyaluronic acid, and they still want to kind of go up the treatment algorithm of injections. You know, that's where I would basically inject. 
For those that I don't inject are patients with severe bone-on-bone -bone osteoarthritis that are on the wait list for a, a knee replacement. And then obviously if they are, in, you know, if cost is an issue or finance is an issue, then obviously that's not. And then obviously if they have any evidence of infection, allergies, platelet dysfunction, or any type of like fracture, then I try to avoid the use of PRP. And we talk about the preparation too, because we apparently in my office have options for both leukocyte rich and leukocyte poor PRP. Any preference? Yeah, and I think that's something that is really based on what one decides. There isn't um, really, there is evidence in regard for both. The ones that we use at our hospital are leukocyte poor. And the concern is that there is some literature and evidence showing that the white blood cells may cause inflammation and more inflammatory conditions and maybe not allow the PRP to work as effectively. But it's interesting because the autologous protein solution, which is the other kind of blood-based uh, injection that is, is out there in the market, you know, that one keeps the white blood cells there, right? Because they believe that those white blood cells are able to express some important growth factors as well as anti-inflammatory proteins. And so that's why in that kind of preparation, they kept the white blood cells. So at this point, it's really up to, I think, one clinician who's interested in this, seems like a lot of the people who do in, uh, injections are uh, leukocyte poor. Interesting. Will you talk more about the autologous protein solution? That's not something that I know anything about. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. So autologous protein solution is another blood-based injection, um, very similar to PRP. However, there's a second spin and second spin as in a second kind of centrifugation. The autologous protein solution usually requires about four times the amount of blood. Uh, usually is spun uh, about two times faster and, and it allows basically an increased number of these kind of anti-inflammatory um, proteins and, and cytokines. And so uh, with that second spin, the white blood cells are um, basically uh, attached to these polyacrylamide beads. And then these white blood cells are what basically kind of release all these anti-inflammatory proteins. And so there's two spins versus one spin, which is the PRP, and it's only one injection. So it's a single injection. You don't have to do two or three like PRP. And it's approved for use in osteoarthritis, especially here in Canada. So a lot of patients are interested in using this. And there is some data up to three years where a single injection uh, has shown kind of significant you know, relief of pain and function in patients with mild to moderate arthritis. So there was, this was a kind of a randomized double-blinded trial uh, with the same in control. And, and, and this group was able to show kind of that pain and function were there for at least three years in a certain number of, of patients. So when you are going to do either of these injections to a patient, what do you tell them is the chance it's going to help them? Because that's what people seem to ask. They want a number, which is hard. Yeah, which I think that's very hard. And I think we don't know that. And so I think some of the studies that we're trying to do here is try to figure that out, right? Who is actually going to respond to a PRP injection or to autologous protein solution injection or a hyaluronic acid or corticosteroid? We actually don't know. And so it's really, again, that's, you know, where just like you're, you know, we're signing someone up for a total knee replacement. We let them know that these are the risks and the benefits. When you're ready, we'll go ahead with it. You are a candidate, but when you're ready, and I think that's the same approach that I take with injections. And I think most of my colleagues do where, you know, we say, listen, this is a part of your care. It doesn't have to be, but if you're interested in it, then 
this is something that we can talk about. And if they're interested in, you know, something that's a, a biologic or blood-based like PRP or autologous protein solution, then sometimes they pick one. They may pick the autologous protein solution because it's newer. There's more data about it or positive data about it. It's one injection versus two or three injections, or they may have tried PRP and it didn't work. And so then, you know, they kind of go up the ladder or, or the next kind of treatment algorithm, which would be another kind of blood-based uh, biologic. I know I also really struggle on, on giving that percentage. And I often will tell patients for cortisone, it's a 50% chance. And I really only offer cortisone in my clinic because it's covered by the provincial health plan. You know, I know the Cochrane review for corticosteroid injections in the knee says maybe mixed at best, but really not showing much of a benefit. But it's really hard to have those discussions with patients that have exhausted all the other options. One of the things that I've been counseling patients on lately is the potential risk of cortisone accelerating the wear of cartilage in the knee. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that just for, for listeners that maybe don't understand the uh, pathophysiology or pathobiology behind that and, and whether that's true and whether that's something we really should be counseling our patients on? Yeah. That's a great question, Jesse. I think the evidence goes against and for. And so when you kind of do a literature search and you look at the current literature and, and the evidence, there are papers and evidence that show that yes, corticosteroids can accelerate osteoarthritis, cartilage breakdown, and the majority of the patients who receive a corticosteroid injection, say in the knee, will go and have a total knee replacement in about two years or so, right? So there's that evidence. And then there are a group of, of, of literature and data showing that, you know, maybe this is not the case, right? And so, yes, there may be some decrease in cartilage loss on radiographic or MRI appearance, but clinically, this may not be of significance. And sometimes they say that maybe it isn't truly corticosteroid, but it is the fact that the patients are actually doing well, you know, they are responding, they don't have pain, and their function is getting better. So they're actually doing more which may cause these patients not to feel the pain or feel the stiffness and the issues with their knee. And so now they're actually causing more harm to their knee. So it may not be the actual injection or the corticosteroid causing it, but it may be more of the, the fact that they're feeling better. So they're actually doing more because they don't realize that they have that much pain and those symptoms from knee osteoarthritis. That is very interesting. But biologically, like when we do it in models, right? So we have a really nice kind of a joint on a dish model, right? So when we're trying to test different therapeutics, we like to do it with human, you know, these are patients who've had total joint replacement surgery. So we can get their cartilage, we can get their bone, we can get um, the lining tissue, the synovium, we can get the fat pads, all the different components. And when we add steroids, right, we actually see a very mixed response. So we see reduction in inflammation, but we also see reduction in collagen production and agrican and all of those things, which are anabolic, right? So it's always kind of a mixed response. So it does both. So it, it mitigates inflammation, which patients might have a benefit in terms of pain. This is a static model, kind of, you know, it's a laboratory model. So it's, it's, it's hard to translate that entirely, but we always see this reduction in collagen and agrican production as well. So it's, it seems at least at the biological level to have a mixed effect in some joint on a dish models. And then the final injection that we often offer that we haven't discussed yet is hyaluronic acid. 
again, a little bit controversial in orthopedics as well. Can you guys explain to me how hyaluronic acid works? So hyaluronic acid, it's a complex polysaccharide, right? And so it basically is found in proteoglycans that are in your synovial fluid. And so companies have obviously created this or, you know, they found it many, many years ago. And they've been able to basically create hyaluronic acid. I think now they use it, they make it through kind of bacterial culturing and they're able to kind of uh, make the hyaluronic acid. And and they obviously injected it because we have it naturally uh, in our proteoglycan. And it's supposed to increase the viscosity of your fluid. It's tried to increase that kind of compressive strength to your articular cartilage. And so that's kind of how the mechanism of, of the action of that. When they inject hyaluronic acid, they actually see that inflammation is decreased. They think it may be due to reducing some of the oxidative stress as well as increasing kind of reactive oxygen species. And they can also see that when you basically take out samples of synovial fluid in patients who have osteoarthritis, and you can see that there's actually a decrease in the amount of proteoglycans as well as hyaluronic acid. So the thought was that, hey, why don't we kind of give the hyaluronic acid back and see if that can kind of help increase the viscosity of the fluid, increase more water, and then increase kind of the compressive strength to articular cartilage, but also helping in trying to decrease inflammation in the knee. And so very similar to kind of PRP, you know, this usually you were given three injections over a period of three weeks, but as COVID hit, some of these kind of single injection uh, hyaluronic acid uh, products came out. And a lot of the times people do kind of put corticosteroid together, inject it with the hyaluronic acid, because there is some evidence from literature that basically hyaluronic acid and corticosteroid together have a better effect than hyaluronic acid alone. Wow, I did not know that. So do you suggest doing that then? I would say that most of the senior kind of colleagues that I've chatted with or talked about and do a lot of these injections do put the uh, the corticosteroid together with the hyaluronic acid. And again, this is where you sit down with your patient. A lot of patients will as Jesse was mentioning, you know, we'll say, I do not want a steroid into my knee, whether they've heard it over the news or, you know, have Googled it, you know, they may not want a corticosteroid. So then I'll, I'll just give a single hyaluronic acid injection for them. But those that are okay with hyaluronic acid, as well as a corticosteroid injection, I, I actually do them together. Interesting. So right now in 2023, what is your ladder of offering non-operative treatments to patients when they come into your office? Like, where do you start say that they're open to whatever you're going to suggest from an injection standpoint. Yeah. So again, this is where, you know, you're sitting down with the patient, you're doing your history physical, and you're really understanding where they're coming from. I think important question is, you know, have they tried an injection in the past? And if so, which one and what was their response? Did it fail? How long did it last? Many of them may have had a previous injection, most of them probably a corticosteroid that they may have received from their family doctor or another physician that has seen them in the past. From there, then you really want to understand kind of their understanding of these injections. So a lot of them do need kind of re-education in regards to that this is not a cure. This won't bring your knee back to where you were in your late younger years. This is really only going to try to help with your symptoms and maybe give some pain relief and try to improve your range of motion. And so that you can go and do your physiotherapy, you can try diet changes, you can try some weight loss and try to avoid or delay your possible knee surgery. Once we have that understanding, then I'll kind of lay out the four injections that we have at this hospital and, uh, and then kind of go through each and every one of them with kind of the benefits and some of the evidence that may be surrounding that and then the cost. 
A lot of the times cost is an issue. So if it is a cost issue, then sometimes I may just resort back from the ladder, starting from the beginning, saying, listen, we'll start from corticosteroid and then we can move on up. You know, hyaluronic acid being kind of this, the middle and then PRP being the third and then uh, autologous protein solution being the fourth. If the patients come in and they say, I've already tried some of these, then maybe we'll go a PRP or an autologous protein solution. And as again, some patients may come and just say, I want a biologic, you know, that's natural, that's my own blood. And then I may just talk to them about PRP or autologous protein solution. So again, there isn't that one kind of, this is what I recommend. I think it's really you and the patient sitting there talking and saying, what's your understanding of it? And this is what I think. And in the end, I really make the patient kind of decide which injection they want. But right now you're not offering any stem cells to patients. At this point, no, we're not. And you can't in Canada without a clinical trial. Chris, you know, a few of our colleagues, Peter Skulko at HSS and, and Bish Baravi, our friend and mentor here in Toronto, published on the increased risk of PJI following total joint arthroplasty, even up to one year after joint injection. What's your approach to the timing of injection and subsequent joint replacement? Yeah, that's a great question, Jesse. Obviously, know Bishma very well. And so when that came out, I know that's changed a lot of our thoughts and thinking. What I usually do, again, is really spend time with the patient, educate them, letting them know, listen, if we go ahead with this injection, there's a chance. And these are for those who have severe, obviously, osteoarthritis and are a candidate for, for a knee replacement, uh, that there is a chance that the injection will fail. And unfortunately, you will have to wait. And so important question is, you know, where are you in that decision-making process in regards to, you know, having a knee replacement? A lot of the patients that do come to see me for an injection are hoping for that one last hope that maybe this will help with their pain and their swelling and their inflammation. Maybe they'll be able to do some exercises. Maybe they'll be able to lose some weight to help start that journey in regards to getting stronger. And so I will inject them and, you know, they'll know that they need to wait at least a minimum nine months or even now a year prior to that. So I think it's important to, to let them know. There have been times where patients have come and, and we've mentioned to that, that, you know, if you do get this corticosteroid injection or a PRP injection or any one of these injections, you, you may have to wait nine months to a year to undergo your knee replacement. So you're waiting now nine months to a year for those patients? Yes, most of them, yeah. Jenna, how long are you are you currently waiting? I'm only about three months. Yeah, three months is what I tell people. And I, I also tell them that once they do an injection, they have to wait three months. So that's something people take into consideration. But nine months, that would be a tough for sure. It's a long time. Do you have a sense of, and this is probably a tough question, but do you have any sense of, of why there is that increased risk? Is it because we're altering the sort of inflammatory milieu within the joint? Is it just sticking a needle into the knee, just the simple practice of that, that, that causes that increased risk? Yeah, I don't know, Jesse, but you know, I haven't come ar- across any of that kind of data or literature showing why that's the case. And so my only thoughts are very similar to what you're saying is that it could be the fact that we're putting something from the outside in. I mean, these injections are trying to change a pro-inflammatory environment to something that's anti-inflammatory. And so I don't see that how that can cause an issue. But I think it is the fact that you are putting something in from the outside to the knee, right inside the knee. So here would the frequency of injections be a be an issue, right? Because I mean, like, probably with a single injection, whatever, but like, if you're repeatedly going in, maybe you're getting kind of some neoangiogenesis, which is associated with more pain and, and inflammation and infiltration 
of immune cells. Yeah, that's another good question. Like, is there a maximum number of injections you'll give? And if so, what is it? And then also how often are you giving injections to people? Like, are you doing them? I tell people no more frequently than every three months for any kind of an injection. I don't know if that number really makes sense. Yeah, that's a great question, Jenna. I would say with corticosteroids, it seems like every three months. So four injections a year is the usual that I find a lot of my colleagues do. If you don't get more than kind of three month relief for a corticosteroid, then maybe I would repeat it one more time. And if it's only for a couple of weeks, then I would say that we need to move on or that that injection doesn't work anymore. For the hyaluronic acid, if you're doing the three injections or you're doing the single injection, I would say you would probably want to repeat it. If it does work, then at least six months to a year, you probably could repeat it, uh, not any sooner. And then for the PRP and the autologous protein solution, there isn't really anything to say that you can't repeat it because it is your own blood and it is kind of your own kind of biological, obviously, product that you're using. And so some people will try the PRP or will try the autologous protein solution. If it doesn't work, they may add an injection of corticosteroid as well to see if they can kind of increase the effect of that response. And sometimes, especially when patients have used their finances, and obviously these injections are very expensive, a lot of them don't want to repeat one that may have failed. So if they find that they haven't had a good response or a prolonged response, then they may not want to repeat that injection because it was too expensive. Right. It's a very helpful approach. And I must say, I I sort of put my head in the sand a little bit when it comes to some of the injectables. But I do think it's important that we own some of these regenerative treatments as orthopedic surgeons. I think there are certainly other specialties that have sort of poo-pooed new things on the horizon and then sort of lost out and lost their market share to other related specialties. So it's really great to hear the work that both of you are doing. and, and, uh, And I do think Having a, a nice approach like what you described here today, Chris, um, it's really helpful for, for us as orthopedic surgeons and most importantly for the patient. So thank you to our guests for joining us today. You can find more information on how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group at AUKUS.org and follow us on Twitter at AUKUS underscore YAG. And for more information on what is being researched by the Schroeder Arthritis Institute, you can follow them on Twitter at Schroeder INST. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.